Father, again, we just thank you for uh, what we're learning here in the book of Revelation. And today, as we look at this amazing scene of this angel writing the gospel or speaking the gospel in the sky, Lord, to the whole world, every tongue, tribe, and nation, uh, Lord, help us uh, to get a picture of what that is. But also, more importantly, Lord, help us to understand his message because his message is very important to the culture in which we live. It's very important to the church in which we live, Lord, because... I think sometimes, Lord, we miss out on sharing the gospel in a proper way, and this kind of puts it all in its perspective. So I just ask today, Lord, that uh, you teach us these valuable lessons, Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit, and that in all we do today, Lord, uh, we honor you with our attention, and uh, Lord, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for our Savior. We thank you for his blood, and it's in his precious name that I pray, amen. I know if you ever go to the beach, you know you're familiar with the fact that when you go to the beach, you lay out on the beach, and you see these airplanes going by, and they've got banners that, they're, uh, flying, that are flying behind them, and uh, usually it's some uh, seafood special or something that you can uh, call the number and uh, go eat the seafood. But one time, I was on the beach in Destin, and I was laying there, and I was watching these planes go by, and this one particular plane had this banner flying behind it, and it was simply, it was sim- all it said was John 3.16. And I thought, what a great way to share the gospel. You know, what a cool way to share the gospel. But i got to tell you something. It's not near as cool as the way we're going to see it shared today in the book of Revelation when we get to this part about the angel uh, in the sky, uh, flying through the sky with the gospel. And uh, so we're going we're gonna to look at that, but before we get there today, we're going to again go back and look at the 144,000. We looked at them back in chapter 7, and uh, we're going we're gonna to look at them again today. And I want you to notice, as we look at the 144,000, the whole scene has changed. Because if you remember, when we looked at them back in uh, chapter 7, they had been sealed by God, and they were on the earth, and they had been sealed by God. But now they're in a different place. So let's pick up in chapter number 14 and look down at verse number 1. It says, Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing. Now look where he's standing. He's standing on Mount Zion, and with him are 144,000. And look at what they have, having the Father's name written on their foreheads. Now, we have an unfortunate break in chapters here. It would have been nice if chapter 13 had been combined with chapter 14 and we'd kept the flow of chapter 13. Because if you remember in our last study, what had happened? The Antichrist had required everybody on earth to take a mark on their forehead or on their right hand. And what was that mark? It was the mark of the beast, which is the number 666. And so We looked at that last week, and now you get a different picture of a different group of people, and they have a mark on their forehead, but it's a different mark, isn't it? It's a mark, look at at the verse again, it's the Father's name is written on their foreheads. So here's the Antichrist, and he requires everybody on earth, whether they're rich or whether they're poor, to take the mark of the beast in order to buy or sell. So if you're going to live on this earth during the Great Tribulation and you're not going to starve yourself, then you're going to, you're going to have to take this mark. But there's a remnant of people who will be on earth at that time who will not take the mark of the beast. They would rather die than take the mark of the beast. 
And part of that remnant are the 144,000 Jews we saw back in chapter 7. And now we see them again in chapter number 14. And, and notice who they're following here. They're not followers of the false prophet, this, this, uh, this person with his beast with two horns like a lamb. Remember, he had two horns of, of a lamb and a voice of a dragon. But they're following the true lamb of God the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And notice where they're at. They're not standing in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. They're standing in, uh, on Mount Zion in the heavenly Jerusalem. So they have made it all the way to heaven when we get to chapter number 14. So we're somewhere, we're going, remember we're going back and forth in time here, and now we're back at the, maybe the end of the Great Tribulation. And here is Jesus standing on Mount Zion, He's with the 144,000, and they've made it through the Great Tribulation. Now, both of these events are future events for us. They were future events when John penned these words in Revelation. Chapter 7, the Great Tribulation hasn't started yet, so that's a future event. The, the, what we see here in chapter 14, that's a future event further out into the future. And there's a lesson here that no matter what happens on earth, in eternity, what happens on earth has already happened. God's seen it happen. And so here you have the 144,000 who are sealed, and John takes this break to show us that every single one of them made it to heaven. Not a 1,000 of them. Not 143,999 of them. How many of them made it to heaven? God sealed them, and all 144,000 of them made it to heaven. Now, I take comfort in that because God has sealed me with his Holy Spirit. And if God has sealed me with his Holy Spirit and my name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life, no matter what happens in the Great Tribulation, no matter what happens the rest of my life, I'm going to make it home because my name was written in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the world. And if you're a born-again believer, your name was written in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the world. And so we can take comfort in the fact that we know we're all going to make it and that God is going to ultimately get the victory. In heaven, the victory's already won. I mean, that victory's recorded for us over in the Psalms. Go back with me to Psalms chapter 2. Toward the middle of your Bible, if you find the book of Psalms and go to chapter number 2. Now let's read a few verses there. Psalm chapter number 2. And listen to, listen to what uh, the psalmist tells us here. And, and this, is a, this, is, this is the whole plan of God or the whole history of the world right there in that psalm given to us in one of those very first psalms uh, in the Old Testament. Listen to what he says. He says, Why do the nations rage, and the peoples plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel against, together against the Lord. That is the history of the world. That is the history of humanity. They take counsel, and hey, I did too for a good portion of my life. In some ways, I still do. I don't particularly like what the Lord's doing in my life, and, 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 and I kind of rebel against that. So they take counsel against the Lord and against, against the Lord and against his anointed. That's the Hebrew word Meshach, from which we get Messiah. 
So against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us break their bonds to pieces and cast away their cords from us. What's God think about all of that? Is he worried about it? No, let me tell you what he thinks about it. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. He laughs at that kind of attitude. It doesn't worry him one bit. When he sees what's going on in the United States of America today, he's on his throne and he laughs. He looks at this pitiful nation and what we're doing to ourselves and what we're doing to our country, and he laughs. I mean, I, I think he, there's, there's a paradox there because he also cries. He cries for our nation. He laughs at the fact that we are so proud that we think we can live without God. And the Lord will hold them in account. He will hold them in derision. And he shall speak to them in his wrath. Now, let me tell you what. You look at the history of the world and all the wars and all the troubles and all the things that have happened to humanity since the fall of Adam, and that's exactly what's being pictured right here. God has held us in his wrath. And in distress, and he will distress them in his deep displeasure. And in the great tribulation, we're going to see the wrath of God poured out in a way it's never been poured out before. But here's the way God sees things. Yes, wrath is coming. Yes, there's been wrath. And yes, people are rebelling against God. But look at what God says. In the end, I've won. Because look at verse number 6. Yet I have set my king, Jesus Christ, on my holy hill in Zion. That's the picture we see in Revelation chapter 14 as we begin that chapter. We've got a picture of the king on his holy hill in Zion. And so what John is doing before he goes back to the great tribulation, what what he's doing here, he's showing us the result of what's going to happen in the great tribulation. And the the result is God is going to win. God is going to win, and in the end, Jesus Christ is going to be king, and in the end, everybody who follows Jesus Christ is going to make it to heaven. We win. That's that's the lesson here in chapter number 14. So go back with me to chapter 14, and let's look at the next few verses, verses 2 and 3. Listen to what he says. He says, And I heard a voice from heaven, like the voice of many waters, and like the voice of of loud thunder. Now, we know that voice. That's the voice of the Lamb speaking. We don't know what he says. But he also heard, he says, and I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. Now, here's where we get this picture of us all, we go to heaven and we're all playing harps. The, the word there is actually guitarist in, in, the, in the Greek. And so if you want to say, you know, what's going to be played in heaven, it's going to be guitars. Actually, the word means simply stringed instruments. So it could mean guitars, it can mean pianos, it can mean harps, it can mean... Uh, violins, it can mean cellos, I mean all of those things are strange instruments. You're going to have this beautiful orchestra playing in heaven and it's going to be playing the most beautiful music you've ever heard. I remember, I remember uh, when I was pastoring a church in New Orleans, the choir was, to say it was really bad is being nice, it was really bad. And I remember one time I was teaching a Sunday school class there before I became pastor and uh, we were talking about heaven, and we were talking about singing in heaven and praising God in heaven. And, and uh, I remember one of the people in the class said, we're going we're gonna to be doing that all the time, 24-7 for eternity? And she's thinking of our choir. I know that's what she was thinking of. She was thinking, this is more like hell than heaven. But this is going to be some music you're going to want to listen to. Kind of like our music this morning. Hey, wasn't that some good music? I mean, it's going to be heavenly music. 
And these 144,000 are going to be singing a song. Listen to what he says. He says, they sang as it were a new song, verse number 3, before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders, and no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. And so I, we don't know what that song is. I'm sure it's either a song of victory, maybe it's vic something like victory in Jesus, or it's a song of gratitude, you'll give thanks to the Lord, or it's a song of praise, holy, holy, holy. All we know is that it's a song written just for them, written by them, and they're the only ones who are going to sing it. But it's going to be some beautiful music. Now, we're going to get a description in the next verse, uh, a really good description of these 144,000 Jews. You, if you've heard of the 144,000, you've also often heard them called the 144,000 witnesses. Well, there's no place in here where they're called witnesses. But I believe they are witnesses. Not witnesses in their words, but witnesses in their action. And we can learn a lot from this description of these 144,000 because they set an example for us all. Look at what it says here in verse number 4. These are the ones who were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. They are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These were redeemed from among man, being the firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. They were the firstfruits of the Jews to God and to the Lamb. And their mouth was, in their mouth was found no deceit for they are without fault before the throne of God. Now let's look at each one of these characteristics. First of all, they were pure. They were pure not only in their sexual relationships, but they had a form of spiritual purity. And I think this is much, has much more to do with spiritual purity than it does with sexual purity. I mean, these, not only were these Jews celibate sexually, they were celibate spiritually. In other words, they didn't play the harlot. They didn't take the mark of the beast. And they would rather die than become uh, like the rest of this worldly, uh, uh, the rest of worldly humanity. They would, rather, they would rather die than do that. And so they have separated themselves unto God. And so they, you get this picture of them like they're as, as being virgins, spiritual virgins. Then the second characteristic that I see in this verse here is look at what it says he says these are the ones who follow the lamb wherever he goes what a great lesson for us there no well it doesn't say they lead the lamb wherever they want him to go they follow the lamb wherever he goes if he leads them beside still waters then they follow him there if he leads them into the shadow, shadow of the valley of death they follow him there wherever the lamb leads they follow. There's, that's a really good lesson to learn for all of us. And then we see the next thing there, they're the first fruits to God and to the Lamb. They're the first fruits of the harvest of the Jews. And so they pave, an, they pave the way for the Jews, the rest of the Jews who will be saved when Jesus returns and he pours out his spirit on, on the Israel and they see Jesus and they uh, look on whom they've pierced and they mourn as a mother mourns for her only uh, firstborn child. We see that in Zechariah. So they're the first fruits of this harvest of Jews. You know, you're, most of you, when you got saved, a lot of you, when you got saved, you were the first fruits in your job. You were the first fruits in your family. You were the first fruits somewhere. You were the first to get saved. And there's a big responsibility with that because you want others to follow you into in, in salvation. And so they set the example for the Jews. We should set the example for uh, wherever God has placed us. 
Here's what I like right here. And I, and I, I, I find some Christians that lack in this area, and, and it, it really bothers me. But, but listen to what he says. He says, and in their mouth was found no deceit. They didn't lie. They had integrity. You know, I've said it over and over again, but integrity defines your character. If you're a liar, you have no integrity and you have no character. That's the substance of who you are. I mean, the devil is the father of lies. As Christians, we're the father of the truth. I mean, we're the children of the truth. The devil is the father of lies, and, and those who follow him are the children of lies. We're the, are the children of the devil. We're the children of God, and God is truth. And so it, we should be marked by our integrity, and they are marked by their integrity. And listen to the last thing, or the next characteristic here. They're without fault before the throne. That's a pretty good characteristic. You following that one? Are you without fault before the throne? How many of you are without fault before the throne? I'm without fault before the throne. Let me tell you why I'm out without fault before the throne, because it's not my work that make me righteous. It's the blood of Jesus Christ. So I stand before the throne of God without fault. I sin, but my sin is covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, which cleanses me from all unrighteousness. And so these guys, had ne it wasn't that they had never sinned. It was that look at who they're standing with. They're standing with the Lamb of God who takes away their sin. And then the next characteristic you don't find in the verse, but it's, it's given by implication, and that is they don't say a word. They sing, but they don't say a word. They don't have to. Their lives speak volumes by the way they live their lives, by the fact they follow Jesus, by the fact they remain pure, they're not worldly, by the fact that they, they ha there's no deceit in their mouth. Uh, the, by the fact that they recognize that they've been saved by grace. They set an example for us all to follow. So that's why people call them the 144,000 witnesses. And in that sense, I think they are witnesses. All right, now, now we come to the gospel in the sky. Uh, verse number six. And it's really some exciting stuff right here. I mean, can you imagine this scene? Look at this scene right here. I'm not going to, I'll be looking down watching this. You might be looking up watching this, but some of you, but hopefully all of us will be looking down watching this. But look at verse number six. It says, then I saw another angel. We don't know which angel this is. Just another angel, an ordinary angel. Flying, there's no such thing as an ordinary angel. <laughs> then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. Man, look at that. I mean, can you imagine an angel flying through the earth? I, I, exactly how he shares the gospel, I'm not sure. But it's in such a, a magnificent way, such a supernatural way, that every person on the earth hears the gospel. They hear, I don't know if he's got some giant megaphone, or uh, some people say he's on, tele, on TBN. I don't think any angels are going to be on TBN. Uh, but he does it on TV or he does it on radio, I believe he flies through the sky and he speaks it and everybody hears it. Uh, and uh, that's, that's an interesting prospect right there. Because that's what he says. He says, Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, 
and people. So at that point, every person on earth is going to hear the gospel. And there's going to be a great revival, right? No, you know what people are going to cry? They're going to cry out that the rocks will fall on them. We will not have this man rule over us. We would rather die than have Jesus Christ rule over us. And so they're not going to obey this gospel, but they're going to see or hear this gospel, and it's going to be preached to the whole world. Now, I believe Jesus spoke of this event in the Olivet Discord. Go, go, go with me over to Matthew chapter 24. If you get a chance... As we're going through Revelation, it's a good idea to go back, read Daniel, read the Olivet Discourse. Uh, you can read the Olivet Discourse basically in Matthew and Luke 2. And, and it's amazing how all of this lines up. But, but look uh, with me at chapter 24 and verse number 14. Chapter 24, verse number 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. And I believe Jesus is speaking of this event that we're looking at in Revelation chapter 14, verse number 6. Now, there's a many a denominational leader that would argue with that because that's one of the, this is their favorite verse for getting people involved in missions. I mean, almost every mission campaign I saw when I was with a particular denomination used this particular verse. In other words, what they basically said was this, we need to get the gospel out to all the nations and people groups so that Jesus can come back. And until we get it out, Jesus isn't coming back. Now, who does that put the decision on when Jesus comes back? Or who does it put the uh, uh, sovereignty over when Jesus comes back? Who does that put that on? That puts that on people. God is the one who determines when Jesus comes back. And he determined that before the foundation of the world. And we're not holding God back because we don't finish our work. We might, we might be losing rewards and we might be missing out on blessings by not doing the work of missions. Missions is a great thing. But it's not going to be what brings Jesus back. Jesus is coming back on God's timetable. But before he comes back and before the great tribulation ends, everybody's going to get one last chance to hear the gospel. And that's what uh, we see here going back now to Revelation chapter 14. We hear this gospel. Now, I want to look at this gospel for a minute. Because it's really important that we get the gospel. I mean, I, how many of you know the gospel? How many of you know the gospel? You think you know the gospel well. Well, let's listen to the gospel of the angel and see if this is your gospel. All right, let's go to, to verse number 7. Here's the gospel. Uh, it says, going back to verse number 6, I saw an angel flying through the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to everybody on earth. Now listen to what he says in his gospel. Saying in a loud voice, listen to the gospel, Fear God. Give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth and the sea and the springs of water. Now, that's an unusual gospel. That's not the gospel I normally share. And I, I wonder if that's the gospel we share with our children, with our friends, and those people we know around us that are lost. You see anything missing in this gospel? 
Is anything missing in this gospel being shared right here? In your opinion, would you correct the angel? I mean, what would you say, angel? Why don't you add this to your gospel that you preach to the world? What should he add? I mean, what about Jesus Christ? What about the cross? What about the resurrection? Where's that in your gospel, angel? There's nothing about the cross. And there's nothing about the resurrection. There's nothing about Jesus Christ. It says, God, give glory to God for the hour of judgment has come. In other words, you're about to be toast. And judgment has come, and you'd better give glory to God. And you better worship him who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and the rivers. Why such a gospel? Listen to me real carefully here. A lot of you need to hear this. A lot of people need to hear this. Salvation does not begin with the cross and resurrection. Now, some of you go, boy, I know you're going to look at me strange when I say that. But your salvation does not begin with the cross and the resurrection. And that's where a lot of people go wrong in their witness. In, in other words, here's the gospel we give out. If you'll just believe the fact that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and that he was raised again on the third day, then you'll be saved. But that's not where the gospel begins. This is where the gospel begins. Let me tell you where the gospel begins. The gospel begins with the fear of God. That's where the gospel begins. It begins with the conviction of sin. You have to be convicted of your sin before you can even know anything, that the cross is, before the cross is even meaningful to you, before you even know that you need new life, that you need the resurrected life of Jesus Christ. You have to fear God, and you have to be convicted of your sin. That's why the angel says here, he says, fear God and give glory to him because judgment is coming. And you're in danger of hellfire. And if you don't get right with God, now I'll tell you how to get right. If you'll listen, he knew nobody was going to listen. But I'll tell you how to get right. But it begins with fearing God. And, and then the cross and resurrection come into play. And we're ready to receive forgiveness. But it begins with conviction of sin and it begins with the fear of God. But let me tell you something, if you don't fear God, if you don't, without the fear of God, the gospel is meaningless. It's meaningless. And what does it mean to fear God? It means to give him all glory and honor. What's it mean to give him all glory and honor? That means you take, you're willing to take yourself off the throne of your life and put him on the throne of your life. And to worship Jesus Christ instead of the spirit of Antichrist. Look, we have a world full of people who worship the spirit of Antichrist. They're going to fall right into his lap when he comes to this earth. Because they don't really fear God. They're still on the throne of their lives. They're ruling their lives. And they have no conviction of sin. You know, they, they think they're pretty good people. You hear that all the time from people. You know, or, or you know the other thing you hear? It's really not my fault I was born that way. You know, sin's really not, an, you know, sin's something I just was born with. You were born with a sin nature, but let me tell you what, every sin you commit is your choice. 
And when you choose to sin, it is rebellion against God. You are rebelling against a holy God, and you had better fear God. You had better fear God or else is what the gospel says. And we need to fear him and we need to honor him. You know, I, I know so many, and, I, and I, I think in some degree I was guilty of this too when I was raising my children, but we treat our kids as if they're little princesses and princes and as if they're, they're not sinners at all. That's why so many people don't even spank their kids anymore. They just let them run loose. And they treat them almost, almost treat them like they're little gods. And, and, and then we say, okay, now we're going to tell you about Jesus, and we're going to tell you about the cross. Oh, yeah, I believe in the cross. You believe about Jesus, resurrected? Oh, yeah, I believe in that. But they're never brought to a place where they fear God, where they are convicted of their sin. That's why I'm so hesitant to baptize young children. I do it if they want to get baptized. And, and, and I certainly believe there's young children who are saved who get baptized. But you're not really saved until you come the, to the point where you recognize the fact that you're a sinner and you need a Savior and you need the cross and that you're, you, you, your life is, 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 your heart is desperately wicked and you need a new heart. You need the resurrected life of Jesus Christ. And until you come to that point, you, you can't be saved. That's why Jesus said you must be born again. Yes, it's through the cross, by looking at the cross. Yes, it's through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But it begins with, with the conviction of sin. And as I say, without the fear of God, the gospel is meaningless. And I think a lot of people have received a false gospel. There's a lot of people out there who really aren't convicted of their sin, who have never been brought to a point where they realize that they're sinners. I mean, desperate sinners. As Jeremiah says, our hearts are desperately wicked. We are all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all need the grace of God. Until we understand that, then we really can't be saved. And let me tell you where it begins. See, the angel brings it back to where it really begins because listen to what he says. Let's go back here to Revelation chapter 14 and listen to his gospel. He says, fear God and give him glory to him. For the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him as who? Watch the last part of this. The one who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and the springs of water. So do you understand, before you can fear God, you've got to understand that God is the creator. Why do you think the devil is doing everything he can to get people to believe in evolution? Because if you believe in evolution... You're never going to get to the cross, and you're never going to get to the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I'll tell you what, you can laugh at me, but evolution is a big joke. And I'll tell you what, if you use your common sense and look out the sky at night and read a few books on creation, you'll find out that evolution is the biggest lie. It's, 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 it's for ignorant people, spiritually ignorant people who are duped, and they use it as an excuse to rebel against God. And, they, and because they don't see him as a creator, they don't fear God. And they don't fear God, and so they never really come to the cross and say, wow, I need that cross. I've sinned against the holy God who created me. He's not only my creator, he's my savior. He died on the cross for me. That's not just anybody's blood coming down that cross. It's the blood of God 
the blood of the Creator coming down that cross. And so, why does he place that emphasis on the creation of God? Because I have no doubt that at this point, the Antichrist and the false prophet are doing everything they can to get people to accept, and I don't think they have to do much because most people in the world accept it now, to accept evolution. In fact, if you don't accept evolution, they will kill you. You have to accept evolution as fact. Look, you look at how people are persecuted now when they come against evolution. They shout them down. They don't even want to hear it. I mean, when somebody, a creation scientist gets on a stage, they, 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 don't, they won't even let them speak at universities anymore because they don't want to hear it. Because when you hear that, you hear that God is creator and you understand that and you believe that, that's where the fear of God begins. And you begin to fear God, and then all of a sudden you realize that you've offended a holy God who is your creator. And that's when you say, man, I need the cross. I need the resurrected life. And I've got to tell you what, that spirit of Antichrist, that spirit that promotes evolution, is already abounding on this earth. It has permeated much of Christendom today. Much of the mainly, mainline denominations have embraced evolution. Let me, let me just give you a few examples. Let, let me back up just a minute here. here. The reason, let's try to figure out the reason that the devil has gone to so much effort to convince people to embrace evolution. Because if you embrace evolution, the gospel becomes damaged goods. Because when you embrace evolution, you're saying that it took billions and billions of years to get to the point where Adam was on this earth, and billions and billions and trillions and trillions of deaths before Adam was on this earth. And so... Most people who teach evolution or in the church are also universalists because, see, they deny the fall. They don't believe the fall is a little fairy tale. The creation story is a little fairy tale. Do you understand what you do to the gospel when you deny the fall? There's no need for the gospel. I mean, if, I, if Adam was the product of death after death, then sin didn't come into the world and death through Adam. And so the Bible's a lie, first of all, so why would you believe any of the rest of it? But then there's no need for the gospel. But the gospel says the wages of sin is death. And Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, through one man, Adam, sin entered the world and death through sin. And if evolution is true, then this Bible's a lie. And if and if evolution is true, Adam would have died whether he sinned or not. So that's a lie. Romans 5.12 is a lie. And that's why the same people who believe in evolution also teach universalism. I mean, this God is a God of love. They forget the fact God is a God of justice. They forget the fact you've got to fear God. No, God is a God of love, and he just chooses to give everybody eternal life because we're such wonderful people. And, and, and it doesn't matter whether they dealt with a sin issue or not. Jesus really kind of wasted his time down on the cross. You understand that is the ultimate blasphemy? To say that Jesus wasted his time dying on that cross? 
And they forget that God is a God of justice. And they don't have any fear for God. And that same spirit of Antichrist is everywhere today. Most mainline denominations, to some degree or other, have bought this into the spirit of Antichrist, which is evolution. That part of it, evolution. Just give you a few examples. The Episcopalians. David's got some slides he's going to show you, so you can read this with me and, and, and chew on it a little bit as we go through it. But they re- recently adopted the following statement in their statement of faith and beliefs. Listen to what it says. We have resolved that the theory of evolution provides a fruitful and unifying scientific explanation for the emergence of life on earth. Nothing about God creating Adam and Eve. And that an acceptance of evolution, watch this, in no way diminishes the centrality of Scripture in telling the stories of the love of God for the creation. Now, notice, look back up there. Notice that it doesn't say that the acceptance of evolution in no way diminishes Scripture. It says in no way does it diminish the stories about the love of God in Scripture. God is love. God is love. You know, that's almost been run into the ground. God is love, but part of his love is justice. Part of his love is righteousness. Part of his love is holiness. And it does diminish Scripture. Evolution diminishes Scripture to the utmost. It makes Scripture out to be a lie. Evolution ignores the role of sin. It denies the fall. It denies the curse. And it denies the judgment of sin. And it doesn't glorify God. Evolution doesn't glorify God. You think about evolution. Evolution, if evolution is true, and that's how God created the universe, then he is haphazard, he's cruel, and he's capricious. Because that's what evolution is. And he's not all-powerful. He's not all-knowing. He's not all-present. And it makes the word of God out to be relative and not absolute and that means that everything is changing the word is changing and God is changing does that make sense now why the Episcopalians believe that God no longer believes that homosexuality is a sin so not only will we accept homosexuality we will ordain homosexual bishops bishops not just pastors bishops because God's evolving. God's changed his mind on that. You know, back in, back in, before God got really, really loving, back in the Old Testament, he stoned people for things like that. But he changed over time. Because we're such wonderful people, he changed, and he's changed his word. Baloney. Catholics. The Catholic leadership, they have wholeheartedly embraced evolution. George Cohen, the Vatican's chief scientist for years, listen to what he states. Intelligent design is not science, even though it pretends to be, and therefore it shall not be taught in any schools or universities. In other words, we've got to ban this stuff. It, it can't be taught. We don't even want to hear it because it teaches about a God different from the God who would use evolution. And I don't understand why anybody would want that God. Pope Francis in 2014, listen to what he says. And I'm, quote, these are quotes. When we read about the creation 
in Genesis, we run the risk of imagining God as a magician with a magic wand able to do anything he wants. That is not so. Oh, yes, it is so. The God I serve can do anything he wants, anywhere he wants, anytime he wants. My God is tough. He's a big God. And if he spoke the world into existence, then I believe it. If he can't speak the world into existence, how can he speak new life into me? How could he save my soul? There's just a man dying on the cross, another man from a fallen Adam. I mean, another man, just another man, a man who was created through evolution. So Jesus was created from evolution because if Adam descended from apes, Jesus descended from apes. You understand the blasphemy of all of that? And then you've got the, the official statement of Genesis by the United Methodist Church. Let's, let's look at that one. It says, we recognize mainstream science as the, it, as the legitimate source for the interpretation of the beginning of God's natural world. Do you understand the stupidity of that? The arrogance of that? The pride of that? In other words, we won't recognize what Scripture says about the beginning of the world. We recognize uh, mainstream science. What they view is the account of creation. That's the one we're going to recognize. And no wonder the ecumenicals are all, are all over this because it lifts man up and it brings God down. It lifts humanity up and it brings God down. And so the official society of theology for the ecumenicals is the International Theological Commission. Listen to what they state about the creation of the universe. It says the universe erupted into existence some 15 billion years ago. I always get a kick out of that. We were, we were at the White Sands a few years back, and, and they said 227 million years ago. Where'd they come up with the 227? Some guy just popped that out of his brain. I'm not stupid enough to believe that they have calculated exactly when the White Sands were formed, that more than likely it's beach sand. It was formed in the flood. Hello, real easy to figure out. Some, but, but they're not going to, oh, no, there's no flood. We don't believe in the flood. Even though there's these piles of dinosaurs pushed up into, into piles all over the world, you know, and, and debris all over the world that we get our oil from, I mean, you know, everything, uh, uh, it, it, all the evidence points to a flood, they're going to deny the fact that there's a flood. The universe ex erupted into existence. I can believe that. Magically erupted with a magic wand 15 billion years ago with a great explosion called the Big Bang. Earth, a product of that explosion, cooled for 10 billion years. And the first organism appeared some three and a half billion years ago, and every living organism on this earth has descended from that organism. You are a product of slime. And Jesus is a product of slime. And Adam is a product of slime, if you believe that junk. Now, that's not just something you see in liberal denominations. You see that in some very conservative denominations, too. I went to one of the most conservative seminaries in the United States, and the head of the theology department of the seminary that I went to, he believed in a symbolic Adam. He did not believe in a literal Adam or Eve. And I listened to him. He never would come out and say it, but one time I got him pinned and, and, and got him to actually say it. And I said, y'all know me, yeah. And I said, I said, I got to ask you a question. I mean, let's look at this biblical. I said, you believe the Bible? Oh, I believe every word of the Bible. 
I said, well, let's go to the Bible. I said, let's go to Luke chapter 3. Split with me to Luke chapter 3. Join me and my professor there. Luke chapter 3, by the way, is the, where you get the genealogy of Jesus Christ running through Mary. But in Luke chapter 3, I said, if I can find it here, Luke chapter 3, I said, look at verse number 38. I said, if Adam is not real, chapter 3, verse 38, and he's just symbolic, then what about Seth? I mean, who was, if, if Seth has to be symbolic too, because if he had a symbolic father, then he's symbolic too. And I said, what about Methuselah? Man, old guy, Methuselah, is he symbolic? In verse 37, you get Methuselah. I mean, go to verse 34. What about Jacob and Isaac and Abraham? Are they symbolic? Oh, no, they're not symbolic. I said, well, where, did, where did it start being real? I mean, where did it start? What about David in verse 31? Is he symbolic? Is he not real? I said, what about Jesus? Is he not real? I said, we're in trouble here. And I said, if Adam isn't real, then we don't know who's real here. And if Adam didn't fall and die because of his sin, then why did Jesus die on the cross? And if this isn't true, what else in this word isn't true? Who made you? I didn't say it like this. I didn't want to fail the class. But in my mind, I said, who made you God? Who made you the one who determines what's real and what's not real in this Bible? You're out of line. I made an A in the class, believe it or not. It's amazing. You know, if this Bible is relative and it's changing, you understand what that says. There's no absolutes. You can't be sure if an absolute's an absolute. And, and you can't trust this word. But I can trust this word because I believe every word of it beginning in Genesis chapter number 1 and verse number 1 all the way to the end of Revelation. That's why the angel rebukes the false gospel with the gospel in the sky. See, a false gospel can be, have some truth in it. A false gospel can tell you all about Jesus Christ and all about the resurrection. But the real gospel says, fear God. Fear God because you're going to be judged if you don't fear God. And yes, God is love, but God is judgment, and he judges every single sin. The wages of sin is death. By one man, death and sin entered into the world. Adam, he's a man. He's a real man, created by God. And death is a result of sin. It was not part of the original creation. God did not create this earth in sin and death as the evolutionists teach. And let me tell you what, Adam paid dearly for his sin. 
because he was responsible for his sin. He understood that because God told him that. God tells you and I the same thing. Let me tell you what, you are just as responsible for your sin as Adam is. And I guarantee you, everybody in this room has out Adam. We've all out Adam. Adam was about as pure of a human being as ever lived. And we've all out him. And so if the wages of Adam's sin is death, then the wages of your sin is death. And until you come to the point where you fear God because of your sin, the cross and the resurrection do you absolutely no good. None. Whatsoever. I'll bore you here a minute. If you're not already bored, but I'll bore you here a minute. With part of my testimony. I've shared my testimony with you before. and Bear with me again. I'm going to do it again whether you like it or not. This part I've never shared with you. And I thought about that when I was preparing this message. Because I think sometimes I'm guilty of saying, hey, just believe in the cross, just believe in the resurrection, you'll be saved. But then I've got to go back and I've got to look at how I got saved. And I've told you the story. My business was falling. They'd thrown me in jail. They were trying to put me in jail for good. I mean, I should have been scared to death. But I thought I was something, and I thought I was going to make my way out of all of it, and I wasn't really worried about it. But I was driving a car. Back, a guy, the guy had repossessed my Porsches and all my Corvettes and all that stuff, and I was driving a Cadillac a guy gave me. Business partner guy I had, he just gave me a cattle. I was driving it back. And I was going through near the Texas New Mexico border. And the car next to me, I was going about 80 miles an hour, and he was going about 80 miles an hour. You know, you're out, way out there, you can go as fast as you want to. I was going about 80 miles an hour, and he blew out a tire. And he came right across the front of me, and I went off, and there's a precipice right there off to the right, and I went off to the shoulder, and my car spun like this a couple of times, and I came to a halt. And it scared me. It scared me so bad. I got back in my car, got on the interstate, and I went to find the first place that sold beers I could find. That's how scared I was. Of course, I did that any time back then. But I got off the interstate, and I got on a highway, 666. There's actually a highway there in New Mexico called 666, near Truth or Consequences, New Mexico, by the way. Runs parallel to the inter interstate. And I got off the highway, and I went into a place to get ordered me a hamburger and a beer. And while I was there, I went into a back room, and God opened up that room, and he gave me a vision. And I saw people by the hundreds, maybe the thousands. You can see that they were dead, but they were going down into the earth. By the way, that sits right on the continental divide. If you look for Highway 666 now, they've changed the number now because so many weird things happen there. And I saw those people going down what I know now as Hades, dead and going down into Hades. And I'd almost died. Maybe I did die. I mean, I don't even know. Or maybe God stopped me from dying. But then I had this vision of Hades, of these people going down into Hades. And buddy, I got to tell you, all the beers in the world wouldn't take away that fear. I was scared to death. Because suddenly I realized that I had offended a holy God. 
And the end result of offending a holy God is Hades and then hell. And I got out of that place as fast as I could. I got in my, left my burger, my beer, paid my check, got out of there and got in my car and got back on the interstate. And I began to reflect on my life and where I was at. And that's when I asked God, God, show me. Show me your way. Show me the way to salvation because I don't want to go to Hades. I don't want to go to hell. And that's when he just pointed me to the telephone pole, simple cross on the horizon. And in my heart, all of a sudden, I could see Jesus there on that cross, dying for all my sins. And then when I had my other vision I told you about where I saw the glory of God and received that resurrected life, I understood then what it was like to not be the old George. What it was like to have my sins paid for, I understood what it was like to have the resurrected life of Jesus Christ living in me and how miraculous that is and how that changed me from that very moment. I was a different person. I went home a different person. And, you know, I value that, those visions, because that's where my passion comes from. All of that's real for me. And, and, and the reason I'm so adamant on this today is you want to make sure you've come to that point too. You're not just whistling Dixie. You're not just wasting your time that you truly see yourself as a sinner, that you truly believe that there's a hell. If you don't believe there's a hell, ask God. Say, God, I don't believe there's a hell, and I won't believe it until you show me. He'll show you. And you'll be stopping for a beer or whatever, too. But that might be where he shows you. Now, hopefully, ask God. Come to that point where you truly believe of who God is. If you struggle with the fact that God created the heavens and the earth in seven days, I advise you to get a book like Henry Morris's Biblical Basis for Science and read it through. There are a lot of good books out there. All of a sudden, you'll look out and you'll say, golly. I mean, we would burn up if that sun was 10 miles closer. We'd freeze to death if it was 10 miles further out. God had to place that right there. We're spinning around it hundreds of thousands of miles a minute or second, and, and, and he's got it in perfect place, all of the universe. And, it, and, and common sense says that can't come from, chaos comes from explosion, not order. And this universe is order. Anyway, that's the real gospel. The real gospel, we fear God as our creator. We recognize the fact that we've sinned against God. And then we come to the cross for forgiveness. It doesn't end there. We receive the resurrected life of Christ. And it changes us. And if it hasn't changed you, you don't have it. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just thank you for your word and we thank you for This gospel in the sky, Lord. The true gospel. The beginnings of the true gospel. Lord, help us all uh, examine ourselves, make sure, Lord, that, that we've come to that place where we truly do fear you. 
Lord, we should live our lives in reverence to you, in gratitude to you for all you've done for us because we are such wretched sinners without you. Father, we just thank you for that grace on that cross, that you, our creator, would empty yourself of all your glory and come as a babe in Bethlehem. Lord, we, how can we believe that if we can't believe that you created the heavens and the earth in seven days? We believe that, Lord. What an amazing thing that our Creator would die for us, become our Savior. Thank you for your blood, Lord. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for heaven. Thank you for your word. Most of all, thank you for Jesus Christ, our Savior. It's in his precious name that I